Welcome to another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I'm Sam Giordano, ABI Executive Director. On November 7th, ABI hosts our first international restructuring symposium in Mexico City, featuring many of the top legal and financial practitioners from both Mexico and the U.S. Today, we're joined by two members of the program faculty for a discussion of U.S.-Mexico cross-border issues. Richard Cooper is a partner based in Cleary Gottlieb's New York office, where he handles both domestic and international restructurings. In Mexico, he's worked on many high-profile matters, including Comercio Mexicana, IUSA, USACIL, and the debt refinancing of CEMEX, one of the largest cement makers in the world. Thomas Heather is a partner with the boutique firm of Heather & Heather in Mexico City, where he has broad experience representing creditor groups and debtor corporations, as well as the Mexican government. Regarded as one of the leading lawyers in Mexico, he has also served as trustee in a number of high-profile cases and was responsible for drafting key amendments to the Mexican insolvency law in 2007. Thank you, Richard and Thomas, for joining us today. Thanks, Sam. Thank you, Sam, for having me. Mexico has been hard hit by the global recession and ensuing market volatility. From 2010 through 2011 and even into this year, domestic companies have utilized the Mexican insolvency law more than ever before, making Mexico the most active of restructuring markets in Latin America. The willingness of large companies to undergo court-supervised restructuring procedures suggests perhaps a shift in perception regarding the risk of entering into a concurso mercantile or insolvency proceeding. The concurso law is about a dozen years old. Drawing heavily on the UNCITRAL model law on cross-border insolvencies, the concurso provides the legal means for a commercial debtor and its creditors to restructure the debtor's obligations under state supervision. So first, maybe I should ask you, uh, Rich and Tom, what are the major differences and similarities between Mexican and the U.S. bankruptcy systems? Rich, would you like to begin with that one? Sure. I'm happy to do that. Uh, I think it's important before getting into some of the specific differences, and there are many, uh, just to understand the different context uh, in which uh, these types of cases come up. Uh, I mean, for the basic, I think, principle is that Mexican concurso law is really a law designed to be used and invoked by debtors, um, which is not necessarily the case in other developed markets such as the U.S. And there are very few large cases where uh, creditors have successfully filed an involuntary and then uh, proceeding in Mexico and uh, had uh, success in, in uh, reaching either a consensual or non-consensual resolution that uh, ends up um, uh, enhancing creditor recovery. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, some of them are you know, uh, embedded in the law. Some have to do with the fact that there's a lot of uncertainty in the law given its limited shelf life, so to speak. It's, it's 12, 13 years, but it still doesn't have the decades of experience that you see in the U.S. There are issues of, um, uh, you know, the experience and, and competence of those judges who handle those proceedings mm -hmm. and transparency and all sorts of things. But that's the general context. Uh, 
in terms of the specific differences, uh, substantive differences between um, U.S. and Mexican law, I would say that uh, as a substantive matter, you know, the, the law tends to favor the debtor in Mexico. Uh, there's no absolute priority rule. Um, there's no formal creditor committee rule uh, where you know creditor committee can be appointed and paid by the estate. Um, the rules for voting, um, you know, are you know, basically allow for a majority of the unsecured creditors to approve a plan. Uh, there are issues that come up in that context, not the least of which are the intercompany claims, the voting of intercompany claims by management. Uh, there's, you know, for secured creditors, there's, they don't have the same concept of adequate protection. The dip financing rules are not, uh, let's say, as uh, clear and uh, favorable to providing new financing on a primed basis. So that there are all sorts of issues. Uh, the process is such that there's, you know, for a U.S. In investor who's used to Chapter 11, you know, you will be surprised at the way uh, the limited opportunities for discovery, right. open hearings and the like. So it sounds like many traps for the unwary. I'll let Tom answer that, but... <laughs> Uh, no, I, I, I agree with uh, what what has been said by Rich. Uh, first, uh, you know, I, w I would say a, a couple of, of, of points. A major difference, in addition to those pointed out by, by Rich, is that we don't have a specialized courts for bankruptcy cases. Mm -hmm. Bankruptcy cases been very few uh, on, on a percentage basis. Uh, any way you, you you can measure it. There have only been a, a handful, probably one dozen uh, cases involving uh, sums of over $80, 90000000 million, to put that as a threshold. Mm -hmm. uh, there, has been, there have been recent uh, cases accessing the courts through the Mexican version of a prepack, which also has its, uh, its, its differences, that was introduced in December of 2007. And um, there, there's only been six cases, and they've been successful to the extent that they have a very high percentage of debtors, uh, sorry, of creditors agreeing with the debtor as to the terms and conditions of the prepack plan. Uh, one of those cases, by the way, is Vitro, uh, mm -hmm. which we can uh, we, we we can discuss. But Mexican courts uh, first tend to the, the federal courts, which now have exclusive jurisdiction, luckily and, and, and rightfully so, over over these uh, um, concurso cases or insolvency cases, really dis have a dislike uh, for these matters. Why? Because these are highly specialized courts in constitutional matters. They have an average docket uh, in accordance with, with current statistics, of more than uh, 2,500 cases per uh, uh, per court that uh, that are related to the interpretation of a constitutional matter of due process, etc. They are not these judges are not skilled in commercial matters. Uh, they have difficulty in in understanding uh, the basic accounting that is required to understand some of these differences obviously no experience with things like uh, like uh, complex derivatives mm -hmm. 
So I think that that's a very important distinction that, that have to be made. Uh, certainly, we are there. There are things that that, that also uh, have a saying on the system, such as the fact that they are heavily influenced by the FECOM, which is an institute of the. It's a body under the federal judiciary that administers the concursos in in far more a micro managed management than than the U.S. trustee's office. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that, that that would be my principal comment for that question. Mm -hmm. How about how about similarities um, practices in Mexico that U.S. practitioners would find very familiar? Hmm. Rich, do you want to take a shot, and then I'll give you my point of view. But uh, certainly, I, I think that you will find that in both jurisdictions, um, we have a even though we don't have a specialized a, a specialized courts in the system, but rather the, the general uh, courts of, of, of federal jurisdiction, we do have, I think, a very good specialized bar. We, we have very good uh, practitioners that, that, that uh, are familiar with the law, that are familiar with cross-border issues, that are familiar with the former 304, now the Chapter 11 a, a tool to be used, and uh, I think that that's, uh, that's been very, very useful in solving problems. Rich? Yeah, I would say there are similarities, starting with the very basic similarity that the law is designed to, both in the U.S. and Mexico, to help companies reorganize. Um, and uh, understanding that bias uh, is important. And uh, I think certainly the law, as it's evolved in Mexico, is an improvement over the old law. Mm -hmm. uh, and frankly, you know, uh, based on my experience in other jurisdictions in Latin America, um, is an improvement over uh, most, if not all, of the uh, jurisdictions where I've worked uh, on restructuring. Uh, I think, you know, there are other similarities. Um, in the U.S., there is a, an ability uh, to bring claims to recover preferential or fraudulent transfers, certainly on the books uh, and in the law. There is that same ability in Mexico. Um, you know, I think there are, is an ability uh, to approve a plan in the U.S. over, uh, you know, the, the opposition of a dissenting group, and I think that that certainly is the case in in, in, Me in Mexico. Um, as Tom mentioned, Mexico in uh, late 2007, I guess, changed the law to permit uh, prepacks. Um, you know, it's, there's a different process for the, the prepack in the U.S., but the concept is there nonetheless. So there are certainly similarities uh, between the two systems, uh, but, you, you know, if you're in one, you wouldn't confuse one for the other. Right, right. Tom, you've been involved in the, in the legislative process um, in, uh, in Mexico, and you've um, identified uh, perhaps the lack of a specialized uh, judiciary as a, as a possible shortcoming. Is that the kind of thing that um, you think might uh, uh, be in the offing in terms of a future legislative change, or are there other legislative changes um, that are um, uh, prospectively uh, being looked at by the Mexican uh, legislature? Well, certainly we have a very limited number of, of bankruptcy uh, cases uh, under any measurement. 
both in uh, the smaller companies and, of course, with larger companies. It seems that uh, specialized courts would be something that the judiciary is probably not prepared to consider, um, even uh, within within um, today's law, because of the fact that it would require a substantial budget and there are limitations, mm-hmm. etc. I think mainly what we have is an issue of of due application of the law. Procedural terms are really not being uh, complied with. Um, there are, uh, of course, new issues, probably the particularly controversial aspect uh, arising in the most recent cases, including Vitro, right. has been that intercompany indebtedness incurred as a result of a legitimate business purpose is pursuant to the concurso law to be paripasu with all other unsecured creditors allowed to vote in implementing a concurso restructuring plan even though the payment terms uh, could be different. There could be some issues of subordination, etc. cetera. Uh, so I think that because of the vitro factor, and I think vitro in Mexico, the impact is much more uh, on the side of intercompany that, yes, there is uh, there's a concern by certain areas. Specifically, the FECOM is pushing for changes in the law, uh, obviously to get more uh, more influence, even more influence in the procedures, but there is a concern about how intercompany or related company loans should be treated. Possibly they should have, uh, they should be recognized if there's a legitimate business purpose behind them, but they will not be entitled to vote or they would be considered to be voting in the same sense as the majority of unsecured creditors. I think that's something that's being uh, considered. Uh, I would say that the the, the main uh, issue in, in vitro is, is basically um, one related to the release of non-debtor discharges um, of debt. Right. In other words, um, what, what the, the principal argument that was made in the U.S. Uh, court that denied the approved concurso plan, which, by the way, technically met every single requirement formally uh, that is that is set forth in Mexican law. Mm-hmm. Um, the concurso plan, when it was requested to be confirmed in the U.S. under Chapter 11, uh, did include... Uh, releases of guaranteed uh, debt of vitro's non-debtor subsidiaries, right. which were not parties to the Mexican courts of proceedings. Mm-hmm. So that has led also to a second review, not 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 by not by the FECOM, but certainly by the Bankers Association in Mexico, to see if it would be is now the time to consider uh, consolidation, especially when we have groups. Why? because uh, there's a big question mark, what happens if you don't put every single company part of a group into a, into a, 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 a concurso for purposes of, of, of further discharges or releases? So we'll see how that happens. But the, the bottom line is that the Mexican Barrenkers Association has expressed much more its concern as, as to the law not being honored. And right. there are a few cases out there like Mexicana de Aviación, which is... Uh, 
basically they're just saying the law is whatever the heck I think is the law and want it to be the law. Uh, measures of public order are not being are not being enforced, and so consequently uh, they're saying, look, I think first we have to push the judiciary and convince them they have to apply the law, and then think of an, you know, redoing the law in some of these areas that I've mentioned. Vitro obviously is a very uh, uh, controversial and important case for all kinds of uh, sort of cross-border kind of cooperation. I think um, uh, obviously the conference will get in into the uh, into the case at, at some depth. How do you um, is, is there any way to predict how this mass of, of litigation might be resolved? Uh, I mean, any sort of legislative change would be prospective in terms of the treatment of intercompany debt down the road, but how is it going to be resolved uh, as it stands? Well, let, let, let me just mention one, one thing, and, and let, I think, yes, this is complex litigation. There are many issues to be resolved. Um, you know, I think this, we'll, we'll see what the Fifth Circuit has to say and confirms, not confirms, whatever. But... Um, for Mexican purposes, at the end of the day, if uh, the U.S. courts were to determine in a final ruling after all the appeals and it goes through the Fifth Circuit and whatever, Supreme Court, if the ruling is you, you have to come back and we will not recognize the concurso plan, because most of these veto subsidiaries have no no assets in the U.S. or Mexican companies. Right. So when when somebody comes and tries to enforce a claim on on releases of discharges of debt that technically have complied with Mexican law, okay, I think we can argue many things, but but just based on technicality, they have complied with Mexican law. I believe that Mexican courts are going to turn around and say. This is contrary to the public policy of the United Mexican States, and consequently, we're not going to enforce, after all of this, whatever it is that the Elliots and, and, and Aurelius and these other right. very competitive uh, hedge funds mm-hmm. obtain in the U.S. But certainly, I think we're in for a, for a period of extended period of litigation, but I'll let Rich opine. Sure. And, you know, it, uh, we're... we're you know, representing a major party in the, in the vitro case, so uh, you know, obviously, um, we have our views, um, and uh, you know, this should be viewed in that context. I, I would emphasize a couple of things. One is, as Tom stated earlier, um, I think it needs to be people need to be clear that the issues that are being litigated in the U.S. in the Fifth Circuit now uh, don't go to the issues of the fairness of the uh, Mexican proceeding. The, the, the bankruptcy court in the U.S. found, and I quote, uh, the Mexican solvency process to be, quote-unquote, a fair process worthy of respect. Um, went on to say that the concurso proceeding, again, was, uh, there's not, no reason to conclude that it was unfair to the, in this case, the uh, appellant. Um, and there was no evidence that the Mexican proceeding was the product of uh, corruption or itself a corrupt process. So the, the issue of the process in Mexico is certainly not under judicial review in the U.S. What what is being litigated, as Tom mentioned, was whether the re- release and replacement of the uh, non-debtor guarantees 
uh, um, renders the plan enforceable because right. um, you know it was manifestly contrary to, to public policy of the U.S. Our own view of that uh, is that the district, the bankruptcy court, got it wrong. Uh, that you know the release and replacement of those guarantees was not uh, an issue that is manifestly contrary to the U public policy of the U.S. Um, in fact, uh, there are many courts in the U.S. and circuit and bankruptcy courts that, in fact, do do issue uh, and do permit non-debtor releases, um, and uh, uh, you know that, that that was just the wrong decision. One the other argument that has been made, which I think, again, uh, I don't think is from a legal perspective um, valid, uh, is that uh, the plan itself, because of the fact that the equity remained unimpaired um, and creditors took a haircut, <coughs> whether the distribution of proceeds uh, of the debtor's property was, quote unquote, substantially in accordance with the order prescribed under U.S. bankruptcy law. And again, on that issue, um, you know, our view is that the, the case law in the U.S. is pretty clear uh, that um, the order of distributions does not have to be exactly as it would be uh, under U.S. bankruptcy law. Uh, but uh, and that we would say that the general order of distributions under Mexican law is substantially in accordance with U.S. bankruptcy law. Um, you know, secured creditors come first, unsecured next, and equity last. Except where uh, a plan uh, that has uh, you know uh, been passed allows for uh, a different recovery, um, as is the case in the Mexico plan. So, you know, I think hard to predict. Uh, what's going to happen? I certainly won't predict <laughs> what will happen in a right. particular case, but I would say that um, it, they're, they're very important issues, not just for you know, participants in the vitro proceeding, but more importantly, um, you know, what it means for other cases, because this is a situation where the uh, bondholders, in this case, bought into this situation substantially after the plan had been announced, um, uh, including the treatment of guarantees, including uh, intercompany, how the debt would be voted. They participated very vigorously in the proceedings in Mexico. They continue to participate in those proceedings. I think there have been over 150 appeals uh, or motions for reconsideration that have been uh, launched in Mexico. Uh, so they continue to be actively seeking to overturn that. and. Um, you know, if you have a situation where the uh, the proceeding, the foreign main proceeding, doesn't raise questions of procedural uh, fairness, uh, but you get a second bite at the apple uh, if you're a foreign creditor, then that's something that you know is is could have significant consequences for cross-border restructuring. Right, right, and investment and all the rest. When is the um, uh, Fifth Circuit expected to rule? Do we know, or can we guess? Uh, yeah, I, I think you know it. It is a guess, so I, I would expect you know a month or two. But mm -hmm. you know, it's been they, they're aware that this is an issue that I think all parties would like to see resolved yeah. on an expedited basis. I don't. I wouldn't assume that it would stop. You know, with whatever the, the, the determination of the Fifth Circuit is. Right, right. More litigation to come. Well, we will certainly uh, watch uh, that development uh, closely. That's all the time we have today. We certainly look forward to the symposium on these complex and important issues. It couldn't be a better time, really, to discuss
cross-border cooperation between uh, U.S. and Mexico insolvency law. Uh, you can still register for the program on ABI's homepage at abi.org. And we thank uh, Richard and Thomas for joining us today. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Good pleasure. And we thank our audience for listening. There are more than 120 ABI podcasts with important figures in the bankruptcy world found at our website, abi.org slash podcasts. Until next time, this is Sam Giordano saying good day. Thank you.